As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup, Squim and Pisht And to the Dosey Wallops Where so many times I fished From Brennan to the Boca Chile, From Lummi to La Push and from the lordly sawduck to lovely duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 10. Olala and Hazard's Starvation Heights. In the episode description for the previous episode, I stated that I was thinking about calling it quits on the podcast, being sick of the only negative feedback I seem to get. I had a few listeners reach out to me and let me know what they think of the show. It really motivated me to keep the show going. One message I got stated that, that the podcast is like listening in on a college class with a good lecturer minus the class questions and discussions. And that's kind of exactly what I'm going for, so that was really awesome to hear. Also in the last episode, I mentioned that I was taking a couple of days to relax down at the Long Beach Peninsula in Owaco, and it was great. We stopped into the Columbia Pacific Heritage Museum there in Owaco, and I was blown away. It had closed with the initial closures during the start of COVID, and their dedicated group of volunteers undertook the task of reworking the museum. And let me tell you, they did a fantastic job. The displays were fascinating and very well put together. I knew they had a clamshell railroad car on display, but every other time I had been in town, the museum had been closed. So this was my first time in, and I was pretty surprised to discover that this car was in fact a Pullman car and has been excellently restored. The model railroad they have next to it in a separate building was awesome to see as well, though I didn't have any quarters on me at the time, so I couldn't see it in action. Mainly, I was pleased with the fact that, unlike other small museums I've been, or been to around the Evergreen State, this one's model railroad was not obtrusive and didn't take away from the overall display space of the museum. We also made a jaunt across the Columbia River and stopped at the Fort Stevens Museum, which was also revamped over the COVID closures and was my first time inside since that happened. My friend Aaron helped with the revamp, and it was done incredibly well. I checked out this memorial marker for the shelling of Fort Stevens in World War II in Hammond right off the side of Delora Beach Road, and saw the shell marking showing what was once a crater from the Japanese torpedo. I've been to Fort Stevens at least a dozen times and had no idea that the marker was there, so it was nice to see something new again. Almost every time I go down there I see something new, which is why I love going to these local coast artillery forts because there are still things I have yet to see, and it's always a fun adventure. Down the road near Delora Beach, I also checked out a small generator room and a base end station for Battery 245. I wasn't able to check out the double base end station that was nearby since it was on government property technically on Camp Rylea, but it was still nice to see some installments of the fort I had never seen before. With this, I will ask you to stick around at the end of the show to hear an announcement on the format of the show going forward. It's exciting, I promise. Today, 
The little town of Olala, a ferry's ride across Puget Sound from Seattle, is a mostly forgotten place. The handful of dilapidated buildings are a testament to the hardscrabble farmers, loggers, and fishermen who once tried to make a living among the blackberry vines and Douglas firs. But in the 1910s, Olala was briefly on the front page of international newspapers for a murder trial the likes of which the region had never seen before. Before I dive into this morbid tale, let's talk for a bit about the history of the town. Olala is located on Colvos Passage on Puget Sound, just north of the Pierce County line. The town used to be as large as Port Orchard, which is the county seat of Kitsap County. Olala was settled in its early years by a large number of Norwegian and other Scandinavian immigrants because of its similarities to their native countries. Noted as early as the 1860s, Olala developed a commerce center by way of its good seawater access. The Old Town Port, located by the Olala Lagoon, was made up of many business buildings, most on pilings. Shipping and the Mosquito Fleet were very busy moving materials, goods, and people. Olala's name is the Shalishan and Chinook jargon word for berry or berries, usually Olali in most lexicons of the jargon. By the end of the 19th century, the cutting down of all old-growth forest in the Evergreen State was well on its way out. Olala was no exception. The land was stripped clean, leaving a barren landscape. This created an opportunity for farming, as dynamiting stumps and clearing the land became a standard operation. With European immigration fueling the short spurt, new commerce came by growing strawberries and vegetables. Olala, being a port of commerce, flourished as logging, farming, and boat building were king. Olala was served by many steamships, including the Virginia V, which was the last operational example of a Puget Sound Mosquito Fleet steamer. She was built along the shores just south of Olala near Maplewood. She was once a part of a large fleet of small passenger and freight carrying ships that linked the islands and ports of Puget Sound in Washington in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. On October 21, 1934, a severe Pacific storm swept through the Puget Sound. The Virginia V was attempting to dock at Olala when the brunt of the storm hit. The powerful winds pushed the ship against the dock as the waves pounded the ship into the pilings. The result was the near destruction of the upper decks. Since the Narrows Bridge was built, Olala has enjoyed a quiet rural setting while being converted into a residential community for commuters to nearby cities and towns. If you arrive in Olala on a summer's day in mid-August, you might hear the sounds of bluegrass, folk music, and local jam bands beckoning area residents and curious travelers seeking the comforts of good old simple living, camaraderie with new and old friends, and some down-home country flavor reminiscent of yesteryear. The Olala Americana, formerly Bluegrass Festival, has become a steadfast summer tradition offering fun activities for all ages and appealing to the kid and all of us. Fascinating activities include demonstrations by old-time crafters, a festive kids' parade, art projects, and carnival-type games to entertain the youngsters. It goes without saying that a festival in Olala without a legendary berry pie eating contest would be unconscionable given the area's namesake, Mamuch Olali, a Salish expression that means 
Have you picked any berries? The community is known for its fertile soils producing abundant berries and crops harvested by Native Americans, early settlers, and today's farmers and gardeners that currently call Olala home. Jump ahead to January and watch locals brave the freezing waters of the Olala Lagoon as they take the annual polar bear plunge. This annual event has been a tradition for 28 years and continues to draw hundreds of plungers and spectators alike. In the 1910s, Olala was briefly on the front page of international newspapers for a murder trial the likes of which the region had never seen before. At the center of a trial was a woman with a formidable presence and a memorable name, Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard. Despite little formal training and a lack of a medical degree, Linda Hazard was licensed by the state of Washington as a fasting specialist. Her methods, while not entirely conventional, were extremely unorthodox. Hazard believed that the root of all diseases lay in food, specifically consuming too much of it. Appetite is craving, hunger is desire, craving is never satisfied, but desire is relieved when want is supplied, she wrote in her self-published book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, which was released in 1908. The path to one's true health, Hazard wrote, was to periodically let the digestive system rest through near-total fasts of days or even more extended periods of time. During this so-called treatment, patients only consumed small servings of a very light vegetable broth, having their systems flushed with daily enemas and vigorous massages that nurses said sometimes sounded more like beatings. This just sounds awful. Surprisingly, Despite the harsh methods, Hazard attracted her fair share of patients. One of these patients was Daisy Maud Hagland, a Norwegian immigrant who died in 1908 after fasting for 50 days under Hazard's care. She would become Dr. Hazard's first patient in the Evergreen State to meet that fate. She would not be the last. Daisy's friends had pleaded with her to eat, but she refused until she appeared to be like a living skeleton, according to the Seattle Times. King County's coroner told the newspaper that he could see no legal bounds for the prosecution of Dr. Hazard, although he was convinced that the patient would have lived had she been given nourishment when she needed it. A day later, the Times was forced to print another story, which appeared to clear Hazard's name after an autopsy showed that she had stomach cancer. Johan Hagland, the woman's husband, even jumped to Hazard's defense and expressed full confidence in the fake doctor. Daisy Hagland left behind a three-year-old son, Ivor, who would later, ironically, go on to open the successful Seattle seafood restaurant chain that bears his name. Just think about it for a second. When most locals think of Ivor Hegland, they think of his restaurant chain. Maybe some of the older folks remember his musical talents, but even then they probably think of food. And to think that Ivor's mother died in starvation. Hazard was only emboldened following the death of Ivor's mom. In fact, the story of the stomach cancer provided cover for Hazard to kill again. It also explains why Daisy Hegland went to see Hazard in the first place. 
Hazard's entire con was built on exploiting the weaknesses of sick people, or rich hypochondriacs in some cases, who felt traditional medicine had failed them. Modern medicine was still in its infancy, but her quack treatments offered emphatic promises and a health regimen that seemed comprehensible to the average person. Earl Edwin Erdman, a 26-year-old civil engineer for the city of Seattle, was another early victim of Linda Hazard's. The man's diary, uncovered a year later, showed that he had eaten essentially only an orange and a, and a mashed soup or a strained tomato soup every day for two months until he died. Just like with Ivor's mom previously, the authorities said Hazard could not be charged with a crime because the man had voluntarily starved himself. But quite possibly, the best remembered of Hazard's patients were a pair of British sisters named Claire and Dorothea, known as Dora Williamson, the orphan daughters of a well-to-do English army officer. Olala-based author Greg Olson explained in his book, Starvation Heights, named after the locals' term for Hazard's Institute, the sisters first saw an ad for Hazard's book in a newspaper while staying at the lush Empress Hotel in Victoria, British Columbia. Though not seriously ill, the pair felt they were suffering from a variety of minor ailments. Dora complained of swollen glands and rheumatic pains, while Claire had been told she had a dropped uterus. The sisters were great believers in what we might today call alternative medicine, and they had already given up both meat and the act of tight-lacing in an attempt to improve their health. Tight-lacing was the practice of wearing a corset that had been tightly laced to shape the body to a desired figure. This practice had been in effect since the early years of corsetry and was often deplored by moralists, the subject of many urban legends and cautionary tales throughout the centuries. Almost as soon as they learned of Hazard's Institute of Natural Therapeutics in Olala, they became determined to undergo what Claire called Hazard's most beautiful treatment. The Institute's countryside setting appealed to the sisters almost as much as the supposed medical benefits of Hazard's regimen. They dreamed of horses grazing the fields and vegetable broths made with produce fresh from nearby farms. But when the women reached Seattle in February of 1911 after signing up for treatment, they were told that the sanitarium in Olala wasn't quite ready for them. Instead, Linda Hazard set them up in an apartment on Seattle's Capitol Hill, where she began feeding them a broth made from canned tomatoes. A cup of it twice a day and no more. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, they were given hours-long enemas in the bathtub, which was covered with canvas supports when the girls started to faint during their treatment. Again, this just sounds terrible. By the time the Williamsons were transferred to the Hazard home in Olala two months later, they weighed about 70 pounds, according to one worried neighbor. Family members would have been worried, too, if any of them had known what was going on. But the sisters were used to their family disapproving of their health quests and told no one where they were going. The only clue that something was amiss came in a mysterious cable to their childhood nurse, Margaret Conway, who was then visiting family in Australia, 
It held only a few words, but seemed so ridiculous that the nurse bought a ticket on a boat to go to the Evergreen State to check up on them. Dr. Linda Hazard's husband, Samuel Hazard, met Margaret in Vancouver. Aboard the bus to their hotel, Samuel delivered some startling news. Claire was dead. As Dr. Hazard later explained it, the culprit was a course of drugs administered to Claire in childhood, which had shrunk her internal organs and caused cirrhosis of the liver. To hear the Hazards tell it, Claire had been much too far gone for the beautiful treatment to save her. Margaret Conway never received any formal training as a doctor, but she could tell something was very wrong. Claire's body, embalmed and on display at the Butterworth Mortuary near Pike Place Market, which today houses the famed Kells Irish Pub and reported to be quite haunted, looked like it belonged to another person. The hands, facial shape, and the color of the hair all looked so wrong to her. Once she reached Olala, Margaret discovered that Dora, shockingly, weighed only about 50 pounds. Her sitting bones protruded so sharply that she couldn't sit down without severe pain. But she didn't want to leave Olala, despite the fact that she was clearly starving to death. The horrors revealed in Dora's bedroom were matched by the ones in Dr. Hazard's office. The doctor had been appointed the executor of Claire's considerable estate, surprisingly. Linda Hazard was also made Dora's legal guardian for life. Dora had also signed over her power of attorney to Samuel Hazard. If that isn't just a little bit sketchy, I don't know what is. Meanwhile, and even more shadily, the Hazards had helped themselves to Claire's clothes, household goods, and an estimated $6,000 worth of the sisters' diamonds, sapphires, and other jewels. Dr. Hazard even delivered a report to Margaret concerning Dora's mental state while dressed in one of Claire's robes. Margaret got absolutely nowhere in attempting to convince Dr. Hazard to let Dora leave. Her position as a servant hindered her, and she often felt too timid to contradict those in a class above her, and Linda Hazard was known for her terrible use of power over other people. She seemed to hypnotize them with her booming voice and flashing dark eyes. In fact, some wondered if Hazard's interest in spiritualism, theosophy, and the occult had given her strange abilities. Maybe she hypnotized people into starving themselves to death. Ultimately, in the end, it took the arrival of John Herbert, one of the sisters' uncles, whom Margaret had summoned up from Portland, Oregon, to free Dora. After some haggling, they astonishingly paid Hazard nearly a thousand dollars to let Dora leave the property. But it took the involvement of the British vice consul in nearby Tacoma, Lucien Agassiz, as well as a murder trial, to finally avenge Claire's death. As Herbert and Lucian would discover once they started researching the case, Linda Hazard was, not surprisingly, connected to the deaths of several other wealthy individuals. Many of them had signed large portion of their estates over to Linda and her husband before their deaths. One, former state legislator Louis E. Rader, even owned the property where her sanatorium was located. Its original name was Wilderness Heights. Louis Rader died in May of 1911 after being moved from a hotel near Pike Place Market 
to an undisclosed location when authorities tried to question him. Another British patient, John Ivan Flux, had come to America to buy a ranch, but instead he died with $70 to his name. A New Zealand man named Eugene Wakelin was reported to have shot himself while fasting under Hazard's care. Hazard had gotten herself appointed administrator of his estate and proceeded to drain it of all funds. In all, at least a dozen people are said to have starved to death under the care of Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard, although some claim the total could be significantly higher. On August 15, 1911, Kitsap County authorities arrested Linda Hazard on charges of first-degree murder for starving Claire Williamson to death. The following January, Hazard's trial commenced at the county courthouse in Port Orchard. Spectators crowded the building to hear servants and nurses testify about how the sisters had cried out in pain during their treatments, suffered through horrible enemas lasting for hours, and endured baths that burned at the touch. Then there was what the prosecution called financial starvation. Forged checks, faked letters, and other fraud that had emptied the Williamson estate. To make matters even more grim, there were rumors, never proven, that Linda Hazard was in league with the Butterworth Mortuary and had switched Claire's body with a healthier one so no one could see just how skeletal the younger Williamson sister had been when she died. Linda Hazard herself refused to take any responsibility whatsoever for Claire's death or the deaths of any of her other patients. She falsely believed, as she wrote in Fasting for the Cure of Disease, that death in the fast never results from deprivation of food, but is the inevitable consequence of vitality sapped to the last degree by organic imperfection. In other words, if you passed away during a fast, you had something that was going to kill you anyways. In Hazard's mind, the trial was a political attack on her position as a successful female doctor and a battle between conventional medicine and more natural and normal methods. Rather surprisingly, other names in the natural health world agreed, and several offered their support of Dr. Linda Hazard during her trial. Henry S. Tanner, a doctor who fasted publicly for 40 days in New York City in 1880, offered to testify in order to hold up the conventional medicine fraternity to the derision of the world. He was never given the chance, which was probably for the best anyways. Though considered by many at the time to be extreme, Hazard's fasting practice drew on a very well-established lineage. As Hazard noted in her book, fasting for health and spiritual development is an ancient idea practiced by both yogis and Jesus Christ. The ancient Greeks thought demons would enter the mouth during eating, which helped encourage the idea of fasting for purification. Pythagoras, Moses, and John the Baptist all reorganized the spiritual power of the fast, while Cotton Mather thought prayer and fasting would solve the Salem witchcraft epidemic. The practice experienced a revival in the late 19th century when a doctor named Edward Dewey wrote a book called The True Science of Living, in which he said that every disease that afflicts mankind develops from more or less habitual eating in excess of the supply of gastric juices. He also advocated for what he called the no-breakfast plan. Dewey's patient and later publisher, Charles Haskell, 
declared himself miraculously cured after a fast, and his own book, Perfect Health, How to Get It and How to Keep It, helped promote the idea of starving yourself for your own good. Even Upton Sinclair, author of The Jungle, got into the act with his nonfiction book, The Fasting Cure, which was published in 1911. This idea of fasting your way into health is still around, of course. Today, there are juice cleanses, extreme calorie deprivation diets, and the breatharians who try to live on light and air alone. I love food, so this is clearly not for me. Back in 1911, the jury in Hazard's trial was unmoved by her claims of politically motivated persecution. After a short period of deliberation, they returned a verdict of manslaughter. Hazard was sentenced to hard labor at the penitentiary in Walla Walla and her medical license was revoked. For reasons unknown, she was later pardoned by the governor, although her license was never reinstated. She ended up serving two years, fasting in prison to prove the value of her regimen, and then moved to New Zealand to be near supporters. In 1920, she returned to Olala to finally build the sanitarium of her dreams, calling the building a school for health. The institute burned to the ground in a massive fire in 1935, and three years later, Linda Burfield Hazard, then in her early 70s, fell ill and undertook a fast of her own. It failed to restore her to health, and she died shortly thereafter. To add another ironic twist to this dark story, the year Linda Hazard died was the year Ivor Hegland opened Seattle's first aquarium, which also had a small fish and chips counter outside. Today, all that remains of her sanitarium are a seven-foot-tall concrete tower and the ruins of the building's foundation, both now choked with ivy. The location of her downtown Seattle offices, the Northern Bank and Trust building at 4th and Pike, still stands. The shoppers and tourists that swarm the streets below blissfully unaware of the schemes that were once plotted above. In an era when scientific literacy was low among the general public, it's not hard to see why someone would be completely convinced that food is poison. I could actually see some people believing this today with the rise of Facebook and the internet and whatnot. The necessity of vitamins to human health was only discovered in 1906, a few years before Hazard started her killing. It's not clear exactly how many people Hazard killed, but local author Greg Olson attributed at least 18 deaths to Hazard in his incredible book, Starvation Heights. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, I have an update to the programming of the podcast going forward. With this episode... I will be releasing a new episode every week on Wednesday nights at 9pm. I've been working on writing scripts ahead of time since pretty much day one of restarting the podcast back in early July. I've got to confess that I've gotten quite a bit done for the most part, and was looking at my planned release schedule and thought, hey, I've got episodes written almost through the end of next year, I can just do this weekly. I've got enough of a head start that I should be able to just keep it up. I've even got three episodes planned for the distant future where I revisit the very first episode of the podcast and go even more in-depth into each of the three blazes that made up what I dubbed the Washington Firestorm of 1889. Each of them are shaping up to be about 45 minutes to an hour long each, so hopefully I can do each event more justice than I did in my initial beginning episode, 
having never done a podcast or any voice recording prior to that point, but that's getting way too ahead of myself. You may have noticed that this episode had a somewhat darker theme to it, and that's because for the next four episodes releasing in October, each episode will be on the darker and or spookier side to celebrate Halloween and the month of October. Who doesn't love a good ghost story or semi-morbid tale every now and then? Coming up next week is the catastrophe of the steamer Pacific, followed by a brief history of Oakville and its mysterious blobs. After that will be ghost stories of Wazoo, and then wrapping up with Everett's ghost ship The Equator on October 28th. November episodes are mostly finished and just waiting for the final touches I do to every script before recording, and will include the first two-part episode for the main show, which will be focusing on a West Coast Seattle boy whose music we all know and love. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. My sources for this episode were the Smithsonian Magazine, the University of Washington Libraries, The Stranger, OnlyInYourState.com, Wikipedia, HistoryLink, and of course, Greg Olson's incredible book on the subject, Starvation Heights, which was published by the Crown Publishing Group in 2005. I highly recommend picking it up and giving it a read. It goes into way more detail than I could present in this episode. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. Thank you for listening to Episode 10, Olala and Hazard's Starvation Heights. Episode 11 will be released next week. If you have any questions about the show, please contact History of the Evergreen State Pod at gmail.com. That email is also listed in the episode description. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets, and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck, the singing Stilliguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck, and Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.